Welcome to Worth Watching Host Choice, where one of our hosts chooses a movie they love and their co-host then attempts to destroy their fondest memories. <laughs> now wait, I hear you saying, in this podcast isn't every episode a host choice by definition. I hear you, dear listener, but that's not quite how it works. We're stuck with whatever Doctor Who serves up or for other seasons, whatever fits the theme. We're legally bound to follow the plan laid out by our corporate masters who withhold our food chits if we defy them. <laughs> but once in a while, we just want to bust out and watch some beloved film that we want to revisit to see how it holds up. So we stick it to our corporate masters and just watch whatever we want. <laughs> I'm your host, a man who knows the best film ever made when I see it and is challenging my co-host to say otherwise and thereby incur my harmonica-driven psychic wrath. <laughs> My co-host is Guy, a man who's never actually been convicted for luring young children into his van, but I'm just saying keep an eye on him. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. Have you run across any black cats lately? Uh, in the village, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Could be the same cat, who knows? <laughs> so, for our first episodes of Host Choice, we decided to each pick the earliest movie we could remember seeing that we wanted to revisit. For me, it was 1975's Escape to Witch Mountain. And for Guy, it was the 1976 version of King Kong. We're almost the same age, so it's not surprising we picked films released within a year of each other. Since 1975 comes before 1976, we'll start with Escape to Witch Mountain. I have very special memories of this film. First, for reasons I'll leave to you to interpret, <laughs> as a young child, I loved any story about kids escaping their parents and having adventures on their own. Second, there's the context in which I saw this film. My parents had four kids, so we had a six-person family, and we didn't have much money. So we'd go to the drive-in, and half of us would be stuffed in the trunk before we went through the gates, <laughs> so we wouldn't have to be paid for. <laughs> Then my sister and I, being the oldest, got the privilege of watching the film from the roof of the car, listening to the sound echoing from hundreds of window-mounted speakers throughout the lot. So at seven years old, I saw this film while lying next to my younger sister on the roof of a car, a film about a young sister and brother having magical adventures, and I got to explain things to my sister that she didn't understand as we watched. So I have very special memories of this. Given this context, perhaps you can understand why this is the best film ever made, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Citizen Kane and Vertigo, screw you, you can't hold a candle to escape from Witch Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> so, Guy, do you have any memories of the Witch Mountain films? Very vague ones. I, I remembered seeing them at the drive-in. At least one of them. I don't know. Were if you I on saw top of both. the car? And <laughs> I don't think so. I think I was inside. But I saw at least one of them at the drive-in. I remember Kim Richards because I had a had a big crush on her. Yeah, we're going to come back to that in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and I remembered that it had something to do with flying saucers. That's about it. <laughs> okay. Well, well, let's you know just... what? Mm -hmm. There is one other thing. 
I, at a very young age, I started noticing typefaces, and and the <laughs> the typeface for the uh, for the introduction, you know, Escape from Witch Mountain or Escape to Witch Mountain. It's kind of neat. It's just got this sort of freewheeling early seventies style to it. It's it's nice. Okay, <laughs> so we'll head into Escape to Witch Mountain. Well, here we are. You're Tony and you're Tia. Ma'am. Hello, Mrs. Grinley. Oh, such fine-looking children. Now, I know you're anxious to see your rooms, but first we have some forms to fill out. Then we'll join the others for dinner, all right? Tia, what a pretty case. I'm going to say right up front, for a low-budget Disney film, because, you know, Disney used to just do dozens and dozens of these films, right? They would, mm-hmm. you know, churn out these films that were intended to appeal to, to young children. And overall, I think we'll see this film kind of stands out because they really, the people involved went to the next level trying to make it a good film. And right in the beginning with the opening credits, we see that. And it starts out, and I have no idea actually how they did this. We get this kind of weird blue outline of the brother and sister running towards us. And they become blue figures as they come closer. And then we see line drawings of dogs that are chasing them, and it's a very stylized thing. Yeah, the if I remember right, the brother and sister, they're like, they're silhouettes, but they're filled mm-hmm. in with camera view of something or other. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And then we see stylized paintings of locations that we're going to see later in the film behind them. And it's very evocative. I haven't seen this since I was a kid. And when I rewatched it, I just totally remembered all that. It, it totally stuck in my mind. I, I had two minor, minor complaints about the, <laughs> uh, about the animated dogs. First, because they had a pretty low frame rate. <laughs> and and it seemed like they were reusing them an awful lot in the yeah. opening credits. So uh, you're being strict, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so here's my response, guy. You've admitted to me in private correspondence that you've had inappropriate thoughts about Kim Richards, who <laughs> plays the girl Tia, in this. So can you expand on that for all of our subscribers and any law enforcement officers who may be listening to our <laughs> podcast? <laughs> well. When I saw the movie, I was just a, a young boy, and then uh, I, Kim Richards kind of dropped off my radar for a number of years <laughs> until uh, in the 80s, she was more grown up, and uh, she she had a few memorable roles in various 80 move, 80s movies. So I just always thought she was really pretty. I liked dark eyes and just, I don't know, cute girl. What can I say? Okay, <laughs> well... <laughs> we'll try not to hold it against you. <laughs> so we start out in a van that is driving to an orphanage. And right away, you can kind of see the director was trying to do a little extra work because the camera is mounted beside the van. So we're seeing the van drive in to the orphanage. And, and it's just a camera angle. It's a little unusual and kind of indicates right up front that the director wants to do something a little extra special. There's an older woman who runs this orphanage, and she comes out to meet them, and she comments on Tia's pretty case, which is this kind of like large pencil case she's carrying on her arm that has two big stars on it. And I'm sure this won't become important later. (laughs) (laughs) So since they're new to the orphanage, Tony and Tia need to fill out some forms. 
And while they're filling out the forms, they meet a redheaded kid who's also filling out forms. And it turns out he's going to be their antagonist at the orphanage. <laughs> he's yeah. a, he, you know, he's a jerk right off the bat. So when his pen runs out of ink, they offer him their pen and give it to him. And he's like, wait, this is, you know, I lost this pen earlier. You stole it from me. So right from the <laughs> beginning, he's accusing them of things that is ridiculous. Yeah. Then they have a conversation with the old woman, and it turns out that Tony and Tia's adopted parents died, which is why they're here at the orphanage. Tia has vague memories that we see many times throughout the film of their parents, but only during this disaster where they're, they seem to be drowning. They're in the water. It's very vague, and you know you can't quite see what's going on, but she keeps coming back to this memory of their parents. Yeah. A little bit later, they're playing baseball at the orphanage, and the redheaded kid hits a big run. <laughs> Tony runs for the ball, and he goes into some bushes. And then Tia, and she does this thing she does whenever she's doing magic. She sort of holds her head. And she causes Tony, her brother, to lift 20 feet into the air so he can catch the ball. <laughs> Which, to, let's be honest, is very unfair. <laughs> Understandably, the redheaded kid is upset because he's called out because Tony caught the ball, but, you know, it was totally unfair. <laughs> <laughs> so he starts a fight with Tony, and when he goes to punch Tony, Tia lifts Tony into the air using her magic powers <laughs> so that he misses him. Then Tony animates a baseball glove to go into his face to obscure his vision. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of slides around, just messing with him a little bit. <laughs> so the redheaded kid freaks out and runs away. And then we hear the siblings communicating telepathically with each other about this. I think they do this really well because there are many, many different points where they're communicating telepathically. And the way they edit, it's very natural. And you totally mm -hmm. understand what's going on. Right. One little detail you kind of notice over time is that Tia seems to be more, she's younger. She's two years younger than Tony, but she's more powerful. So, for example, she can communicate with him telepathically without having to move her mouth, without speaking. But Tony can only communicate with her by actually talking. I, I hadn't I hadn't noticed that, but it sounds right. I All the things I can think of off the top of my head are Tia communicating with others. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So later that night, they're each in their beds in separate rooms and they're telepathically discussing their promise to each other not to use their powers. So they kind of screwed it up during that baseball game <laughs> <laughs> because they both use their powers, even though they're trying not to do that. And the reason they're trying to avoid it is in their past, they found that when they use their powers, other kids tended to think they were freaks for mm -hmm. some reason. <laughs> And while they're talking, Tia starts to hear dogs, like dogs chasing them. Tony, do you hear the dogs? No. How far? Oh, about 20 miles. Big dogs. Six or seven. Yeah. I can hear them now. And they realize it's a premonition. At some point in the future, dogs are going to be chasing them. So they're going to meet these dogs someday. 
especially for me again, as a little kid on top of the car, this is pretty freaky. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, these dogs are coming. They're going to encounter them at some point. (laughs) And the next day, so they're waiting to go on a field trip. They're all going to get on a bus. And the redheaded kid steals Tia's star case that she always carries with her. And he challenges Tony to another fight. Before they can fight, a nearby black cat hisses and knocks the star case out of the redheaded kid's hand. So this black cat seems to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the cat goes on uh, onto a branch in a tree, and there's a really bad <laughs> special effect where they just reverse the film forward and backward to make the cat blink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'd think it wouldn't be that difficult to get footage of a blinking cat. Yeah. But, uh, no. And so because it blinked, they, Tony and Tia now call the cat Winky, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. based on a bad special effect. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I'll say most of the other special effects in the film are pretty good. So this kind of stands no. out for him. I'll have some more to say about that later <laughs> okay. on. Not all of them. Okay. Let's... So their field trip turns out to be to see the Disney movie Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And I'm sure the fact that Disney produced this film has nothing to do with the fact that that's the movie they were seeing. Yeah. If you're going to use product placement, may as well be your own product. Yeah. So when they get out of the movie, Tia looks across the street and she sees a limousine. And she tells her brother Tony that something bad is going to happen to the limousine. And she says, there's a man. He mustn't get into that car. There he is. <laughs> and who she points out, and it's just totally cracked me up. It's Donald Pleasance. Mm-hmm. Now, if you don't know who Donald Pleasance is, well, if you've ever seen John Carpenter's Escape from New York, he was the president. <laughs> He's this bald guy, you know, very distinctive, really interesting actor. Oh. And he is playing a role of Duranian. I, I mainly remember him from Halloween because he was the yeah, wise yeah. old doctor in that. Yeah, he was like a psychologist or something, right? Or psychiatrist yeah. in that one, yeah. Who tells the kid not to go into the building. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tony and Tia approach Duranian and tell him, please do not get into this car or something is going to happen. And, you know, this is really weird because here's an adult and here are two kids coming up and saying this very strange thing. But... He decides to take them seriously, and he tells his driver, you know what, I'm going to take a walk. And so he leaves, and just a few seconds later, a tow truck goes out of control and smashes into the car that he would have been sitting in. And suddenly, Duranian becomes very interested in these children. Mm. (laughs) Now we switch to what I'll call the evil guy's compound. (laughs) I think it's called Xanthus, if I remember. Yes, Xanthus. And I looked it up, and it is, there's like a Greek word for that, uh, that it represents. So the evil guy is Ray Milland, who, I don't know what all he's been in, but he's a totally memorable, someone you would recognize, you know, kind of older guy who's played all Mm -hmm. sorts of roles. And he's playing Aristotle Bolt, and he's listening to several soothsayers who are predicting his future, and they're saying something is about to happen. But he's not impressed with his soothsayers because so far their predictions haven't added one cent to his fortune. (laughs) And I I saw a movie just a few weeks ago, uh, first one I've seen in the theater for a long time. Uh, It was called Nightmare Alley, and -hmm. it's a remake of an old film noir. I, I enjoyed it a lot, but in it there's a rich man who is 
trying to uh, find people with genuine psychic powers to help him, you know, with his, uh, well, he he's not so much trying to make money as trying to resolve some other past history of his own. Anyway, it, it kind of reminded me that this reminded me of that. It's a similar <laughs> kind of setup. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, uh, Duranian shows up at the school playground and he finds Tony and Tia and he thanks him for saving his life. And he says he supposes this kind of thing happens with them all the time, them knowing about things before they happen. So, you know, very quickly, he's kind of cottoned on to their powers. Mm -hmm. And before they have to answer, the lunch bell rings and they run off. They seemed kind of eager to run off, I thought. Yeah, yeah, they didn't want to talk to him. But Duranian finds the red-haired kid and asks him about them. And, of course, he's happy to tell them everything he knows. (laughs) Gives them their names, et cetera. And then we have this switch, and it's, to me, again, I, I remember this from when I was a kid watching this, very dramatic, where we hear this harmonica music, and we don't know what it's about. And then we see this marker on a mirror and it's drawing a building and the building is the building of the evil guy (laughs) we saw (laughs) earlier. So it's very striking because you're just hearing this harmonica music and the marker, you know, on its own drawing this building on the mirror. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's, uh, I'm guessing it's done with a magnet behind the mirror, but, uh, (laughs) not sure. It's, It's a good effect though. And Tia, his sister comes in and she shows Tony that, when the redheaded kid was screwing with them and Winky jumped up and did everything, her star case got messed up. You know, it got knocked to the ground. It got messed up. And it turns out that inside her star case, there's a map to somewhere. And they don't know what this is about, but the map mentions both Stony Creek and Misty Valley. Yeah, the the case has, uh, there's like a front plate screwed on, and, and the screws came loose, so it's just hanging by <laughs> one of them. And, it, you know, it, it slid aside and revealed the map right underneath mm-hmm. it. So they decide that when they can figure out where this map leads, they're going to go there. And they also realize while they're talking that the mansion that Tony has been drawing with his harmonica is a place that they're going to be going to, because Tony is only capable of drawing things that they've been at or that they're going to be at. Mm. And while they're talking about this, they hear the eerie barking of dogs. (laughs) (laughs) And now we switch to the evil guy's mansion, and Duranian is reporting to Bolt, the evil guy. (laughs) And he said he's interviewed all sorts of people from the village where Tony and Tia were staying, and lots of people have stories of strange coincidences involving these kids. Bolt is very skeptical, and he tells Duranian if he's wrong about Tony and Tia, he's through with Bolt. You know, Bolt will fire him or, you know, who knows, maybe mm-hmm. do more. <laughs> <laughs> and he tells Duranian to bring the children to him so he can evaluate them. And he tells Duranian to make this work. Look, become their legal uncle. Forge whatever documents you need. You know, do whatever you have to so that you're technically their relative and then you can bring them here. We switch to the school, and the old woman decides that the documentation provided by Duranian proves that he has custody of these children, that he's their uncle. 
So he's going to take them away. And Tia asks, can I bring Winky, the cat? He's very smart, and he knows how to deal with dogs. And now we have an interesting little thing, because Geranius says to her, did I mention dogs? (laughs) (laughs) And we see in a conversation after this, the kids know that he's not their uncle, but they don't have a choice. He's provided this paperwork. They have to go with him. Yeah. So back to the evil guy mansion, (laughs) and they meet Mr. Bolt. And he gives them their favorite ice cream flavors. So that's always a good way to get kids on your side. Could <laughs> could work for me too. <laughs> then they're taken to their bedrooms, which are fabulous. You know, their bedrooms are these massive places with lots of toys and all sorts of other things. Not only toys, but they have these different stages. So there's like a stage for puppets and a soda fountain. And they've even provided an area for Winky. So there's like a whole cat tree, (laughs) et cetera. Mm -hmm. So everything is perfect. But they find out there are no neighbors and no other kids that they can interact with. So they're going to be stuck here on their own. No one else they can talk to. Yeah, they look out the window and there's just ocean outside. Yeah, and Duranian says, everything you see is owned by Mr. Bolt. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I I could be wrong, but I think they got the name Duranian from the word deranged. That would be my <laughs> that would be my guess. But I could yeah, be it could be. Uh, the next morning they're getting training riding horses, so you know it's the kind of cool thing they get to do. And in a nearby stall, there's a very upset horse that Tia asks about, and the trainer says that's old Thunder Horse. He's never been broke. Tia approaches Thunderhorse and communicates with him telepathically, and she calms him down, and he ends up actually bowing down to her, and she mounts him. So this is a shock to the trainer. But Duranian is standing nearby, and he sees what she's done, and it's another confirmation of these kids' abilities. Right. Later, it's raining outside, so they can't go out. The kids are bored, sitting in the room. So Tony takes out his harmonica to do some magic, And they actually talk about the fact that there's a difference between the two of them. Again, Tia is younger, but she doesn't need a harmonica to do magic. She just does it on her own, where Tony has to use the harmonica. And I think it works really well. It's really compelling. And he animates the puppets on their little stage that has been provided to them. And And we see multiple minutes of the puppets dancing around, all sorts of different puppets. It's, it's kind of misleading because uh, you think it's going to be really uh, really cheap at first, like they just never show the, the sticks controlling the marionettes. But then they'll switch the scene, and suddenly you'll see it there, and there really is just like these marionette sticks hovering in the air, pulling the strings. So yeah. uh, whatever they did to set that up, this is, uh, this is one of the better special effects in the yeah, film. Yeah, it's, re- it's really well done, and I don't know how they did it but it turns out that both evil guy bolt and duranian are watching all this on hidden cameras (laughs) so they're seeing the powers of these kids and duranian says once he has enough video evidence he's going to show it to the children so they can blackmail them (laughs) (laughs) bull says good if that doesn't put them on my team well then we'll have to resort to cruder methods of persuasion Mm. now i 
I feel like these adults are kind of out of touch because these are two little kids. What do they care that you have video of them doing magic? It's not like, <laughs> oh my God, now we have to do whatever you want. You know, <laughs> you're going to, I don't know. <laughs> well, they have reached the age where they can be reasoned with. Like, you know, they were trying not to use their powers because <laughs> all the kids treated them as freaks. But <laughs> but then again, there aren't any neighbor kids nearby. So. Mm. Uh, I know he'll probably just get out an electric cattle prod. That'll be a cruder <laughs> method of persuasion. Yep. So later that night, they're both in their separate beds in their different rooms, but they're communicating telepathically. And Tia is upset because she has a premonition that Bolt is a mean person. And he's never going to let them go. Tony kind of pushes back on her. He says, you're not always right about these things. But ultimately, he knows that she's right and that they have to escape. And then we see them at a dinner with Bolt. It's one of these very awkward things. There's a very long table, and Bolt is at one end, and Domania is at the other, and they're in the middle. So it's, it's not, an, you know, not an intimate circumstance at all. But he confronts them with the fact that they have powers. They play dumb. And then they tell Bolt and Domanian that they need to go to bed. And they leave the room, but they cyclically listen in, and they hear Bolt telling Domanian that while the children could escape from his building here, once they're in the chalet, they won't be able to escape. So we don't know where the chalet is, but... So they decide they need to escape, and Tia, one of Tia's special powers is she can unlock locks. So she uses her power to unlock doors, and they get outside... And we hear a bunch of whistles. People are after them. The dogs are released. They reach a gate. And then, you know, the dogs are right behind them. Tia uses her animal communication powers to tell the dogs to stop. And then she calls Thunderhead, that, you know, wild horse. And he rides up and they get on him and ride off with Winky in tow. I want, I want to point out here that all the foreshadowing we've had, you know, the animated dogs in the opening credits mm -hmm. and then the, the various telepathic hearing of dogs barking <laughs> and all that, that all, that all led up to this where the dogs chase them for half a minute and then they turn around and go after their keepers instead because <laughs> Tia asked them to. Mm. So that's, <laughs> that's, that was, uh. Not the dramatic dog chase I was anticipating from all the stuff that came before. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, understandably, Evil Guy Bolt is not happy. He wants the kids back no matter what so that he can make money off of them. The kids very thoughtfully drop Thunderhead, the, the horse, off at a veterinary hospital where they can take care of him. And then they hear sirens coming. And they're desperate to escape, and they run around, and they find a camper. You know, the kind of thing that people drive across country. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's the, a Winnebago. Yeah. Very nice. That's a big bagel. W on it, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out to be owned by Eddie Albert, who I love. Oh, yeah. And he's playing Jason O'Day, a curmudgeonly loner. And we see him acquiring tons of supplies, and it turns out really, you know, because he doesn't want to interact with anyone, so he yeah. wants to come into town, get all the supplies he can, and then leave. Man after my own heart. <laughs> so Domanian comes by, and he sees Jason, and he asks him about the children. 
And Jason says, Mister, if I did see them, I'd just as soon leave them running, long as they're not going where I'm headed. So he has no interest in children. <laughs> then we're at the beach. Jason pulls his camper up to the beach. The kids are hidden in the back of the camper. He doesn't know this yet. With Winky. And Winky chews open a big bag of flour in the back and then jumps out of the camper. First, Jason sees Winky, and he's okay with him. He's a cat. He offers him some canned tuna. But then he finds the kids in the back of the camper covered in flour, <laughs> and he realizes that they're the kids who Dominion was looking for. So he lectures them, and he tells them they need to get on their way. But, you know... He does have a heart of gold, so he realizes before they should get on their way that they must be hungry, and he says he'll make them breakfast. But he also says he has no patience for runaways. <laughs> and Tony says, but it's just the opposite, sir. We're trying to find out where our home is. So he gives them a towel and tells them to go to the water of the beach and clean themselves off. Meanwhile, we see this scene with a whole bunch of police officers who set up a you know, roadblock and Duranian is meeting with them and they have a conversation and they realize that this camper must be where the kids were. You know, one of the cops let the camper through. So while they're eating breakfast, the kids tell Jason they're polite. He doesn't know whether to believe them or not, but he says he's going to be on his way and he's going to leave them behind. But then he realizes he's missing his keys and the kids tell him, if we get your motor started and clean up the mess we made with the flour, will you take us to Stony Creek, the thing from the star map? And Jason says, oh, you must have stolen my keys so that you could set me up for this. And Tia says in a very dramatic way. Sir, the engine will start now. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the beach, we see Winky finding the lost keys and bringing them back to the camper. So, in fact, he had actually lost the keys. The kids hadn't screwed him over. So Jason agrees to get them to Stony Creek, and he fires up the camper, and they leave the beach. And they go through a massive puddle of water, too. That's uh, <laughs> no, no way to treat a Winnebago, I think. <laughs> so we're halfway through. After leaving the beach, O'Day takes the Winnebago to the local gas station. He goes across the street to get a few groceries. The gas station attendant is filling the filling the camper, and he's nosy. He's looking through the camper windows. <laughs> it's one of those guys where I don't know his name, but I'm sure I've seen him in a whole bunch of things. Yeah, yeah, he uh, he, he does look kind of familiar. You know, probably a character actor of some kind. But yeah, he's a he's just sort of a nosy little weasel here looking through the windows and as soon as the camper takes off, he goes inside and makes a phone call. And sure enough, as the camper is driving along a coastal highway, a motorcycle cop turns on his <laughs> siren and, and pulls him over. They pull up on a little turnout right uh, right near the ocean. It's on a cliff above the ocean. And Tony uses his harmonica to start the policeman's bike, and the policeman stands there watching. He's uh, <laughs> He doesn't seem exactly astonished. I'd say he's more like mildly curious. 
But Tony proceeds with his plan and sends the bike going over the cliff right into the sea. And then the Winnebago drives off, and the cop just stands there looking mildly <laughs> perplexed. So they made a clean getaway that time. After having seen this display of supernatural or uh, scientific or whatever the kind of powers these are, O'Day jokes that he might put the kid's abilities to work at deep sea fishing. <laughs> and this provokes a flashback in Tia. You know, she's mm. been having these visions of that night when they were among the flotsam and jetsam in the water. And this time she gets the additional bit of information that there was a fishing trawler involved mm. somehow. And they mentioned that their foster family also had a fishing trawler and, uh, I don't think it's ever said explicitly, but I, I get the impression that the family that rescued them in this trawler ended up being the family that uh, mm -hmm. brought them into their home. But anyway, she just remembers now that the fishing trawler was involved. Then we switch to the evening, and the camper has gotten into a cozy little park by a river. They're sitting at a picnic table, uh, O'Day and the kids, having a little supper. And they show O'Day... The star case that Tia carries around, and they mm. show him the map that was recently revealed. She says she remembers there was some kind of accident. You know, she's vague on a lot of the details, but the star case was with her at the accident. O'Day speculates that the map was hidden to await the kids getting old enough to do something about it. Mm. And he has a moment where he, uh, he kind of looks fondly at the kids. And he says, I wonder how I'd handle you kids if you were mine. Well, maybe that's why I never married, huh? <laughs> right away, the kids contradict him. They say that he was married. They go into some detail about the house he lived in. And they mention that his wife died only a few months after the marriage. And they even know, I think it might be Tony who knows this, that O'Day had taken an oath never to give his love to anyone else, a wife or otherwise. And this is kind of freaky because he is seeing these kids delving into his deepest thoughts and secrets, you know. And yeah. So it's very disturbing, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's uh, he's irritable after they've they've said that. They call him O'Day again, and he says, The name's Jason. If you know so dang much <laughs> about me, you might as well use it. <laughs> so from this point on, we can call him Jason or O'Day. He's upset and disturbed, but he can't stay mad at the kids. He glares at them for a few moments, and then uh, then he kind of warms up and smiles. And He says uh, they're going to get some sleep in the camper, and they're going to leave the park here before dawn. Meanwhile, Duranian, he has a car phone, which for 1975 <laughs> must be pretty uh, darn expensive. He's talking to the Longview Sheriff, and the sheriff has been offered $1,000 to catch these kids. <laughs> and he's very impressed by that $1,000. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a, uh, a princely sum there. <laughs> mm -hmm. So he's, he's all eager to go out and catch some kids. Duranian, as he's being driven by the chauffeur, he spots the camper. It's just uh, it's just close enough to the road that it can be seen from the road. And so he has the chauffeur pull into the little park down there. Unfortunately, Jason and Winky are unable to sleep, and Winky hears the footsteps of them approaching. He jumps out the camper window and climbs up a tree. 
Then, when the chauffeur gets close enough, he's walking side by side with Duranian. The cat, Winky, jumps down howling. <laughs> and uh, he knocks the gun from the chauffeur's hands. <laughs> and I gotta say, I'm not sure in history any cat has actually extended themselves like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got that psychic bond going yeah. on. <laughs> But the howl wakes up the kids, and they, they're out of the bed like a shot. And Tia assesses the situation pretty quickly, and the gun is still lying on the ground where the cat knocked it down. She levitates the gun, and just to show that she means business, she cocks the hammer, too, and it's pointed right at the chauffeur. So the chauffeur and Duranian are standing there side by side, afraid to do anything because there's a cocked gun pointed at him. Jason drives off with the camper, and uh, as soon as they're out of range, the gun falls to the ground. <laughs> so they're back on the road. Jason says they're approaching Longview. His brother Hiram lives there, so that'll give them a place that they can uh, recuperate, hopefully. But first, they still have Duranian following them. So Jason's plan, he's going to get into town, find a place to make a little clever maneuver and let the kids get out and hide somewhere and then he'll go off and Duranian can chase him alone. But when he does let the kids out in Longview, it turns out that the sheriff is watching. He's sitting in his car just watching the town and he sees the kids get out of the camper. So while Duranian goes on a goose chase after the camper, the sheriff goes after the kids and he catches them. Back in the sheriff's office, the kids give their names as Tony and Tia Castaway. It's a little <laughs> slip-up. They, they, weren't, they weren't intending to be misleading. It's just what came out. And the sheriff says their name is Malone, and he says he'll show them what lying to the law gets you. He leads them down a hall and puts them in a cell. So now that they're all in the clink, Tia thinks the name Castaway may be related to the fact that they had to learn English when the Malones took them in. It wasn't their yeah. first language. So every every time she remembers this uh, these events from the past, she she remembers a little more. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe the map has some little memory triggering power or something, I don't know. But she remembers a man they called Uncle Benet, and he spoke mm -hmm. the language they used to speak before they ended up having to learn English. But she thinks he drowned in the accident that she keeps remembering. They hear the sheriff talking back in his office. They're using their mind powers to amplify it, apparently. The sheriff is saying that Duranian is on his way, so they're under some pressure to get out before he gets here. They look out the barred window of their cell, and they see nearby a bear locked in a cage. And they <laughs> feel sorry for him. He doesn't look happy. Tia levitates Tony's harmonica from the sheriff's office all the way down the hallway through the bars of the cell. And then she uses her mind to unlock the cell door. So they get out and they sneak down the hall, and now they're just outside the sheriff's office. And at this point, Tony uses his harmonica to create an abomination out of a broomstick, <laughs> the sheriff's leather coat, and the sheriff's hat. It looks like a sinister man without any actual man in it. And it attacks the sheriff, and the sheriff hides in the corner under his chair, which is probably a good option all in all. <laughs> and now we see that the creepy thing somehow has just acquired an olive shirt. It, it wasn't in there. I actually rewatched the scene just to see if this <laughs> appeared out of nowhere. And 
That's what it did. It appeared out of nowhere. But the shirt is swelling, and then it pops like a balloon. That's the grand finale, that the the attack on the sheriff is over, but the sheriff is still kind of stunned and hiding under his chair. And Tony grabs the star case and leaves. Outside, he sees that Tia is using her lockpicking skills to uh, release the bear from its cage. Um, and there's a, this is something that's completely irrelevant. I just liked it. There's an appliance repair shop. They have a big old Zenith sign, which, uh, <laughs> I, I just like the sign. I used to see him all the time when I was a kid. Mm. Now Zenith is not around much anymore that I've seen. Anyway, the bear follows the kids into the woods. It's, it's peaceful and apparently grateful for their help. The sheriff, meanwhile, has gathered a crowd of gun-toting locals outside the courthouse. And he tells this crowd that he's convinced that the kids are witches because these are Californians and they're a backward, (laughs) superstitious lot. (laughs) Uh, The plan is to stop the kids before they get to Witch Mountain. And then the Duranian's car pulls up. Maybe it's just the way this is filmed, but it looks like it, the chauffeur is really being heedless here. It looks like he nearly <laughs> runs over some of the people in the search party. The sheriff says the kids got away, but we know what they are, evil itself. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so he he is a dim, of course, considering that awful thing that attacked him in his office, I, I, yeah, mm. he might be a bit biased. <laughs> Duranian uses his car phone to order a complete security check on Jason O'Day, which will bear some fruit momentarily. Mm-hmm. Back in the woods, Tony tells his sister that the bear will be safer on its own now that they've got all these guys with guns chasing after him. They guide the bear to a cave, and they leave him there, tell him to stay there till nightfall. But Tia points out, Tony, his feelings were hurt. So, poor old bear. But but he gets to have some fun of his own very shortly because four members of the search party come in and check the cave, and as soon as they see the bear, they drop their guns and flashlights and panic and run away. (laughs) The kids, they find Hiram O'Day's house, and Jason is there waiting. Hiram himself isn't home. And this is when Duranian gets the word that Jason has a brother, Hiram, who lives very nearby. So the chauffeur and Duranian are off to that house. At Hiram's house, the kids remember that Castaway is the name of someone they're supposed to see. They have to go to the mountains that are shown on the map. Jason says that his brother Hiram has mentioned which mountain in his letters. There were strangers who had settled there. They kept to themselves. Nobody ever knew where they came from. So the plot thickens. Mm-hmm. Duranian uses his nifty car phone to notify Aristotle Bolt of his destination, Hiram O'Day's house, and Bolt gets into a little copter labeled Aristotle Bolt, (laughs) just in case there was any question. (laughs) The kids look out Hiram's window and they see Duranian's car approaching. Tia sends a mental summons to the bear uh, so he can come back and help out some more. (laughs) Jason and the kids get into the camper and drive off. Duranian and the chauffeur had got out of their car to go into the house, but when they see the camper drive off, they rush back to the car, and there's a bear in it. So (laughs) neither of them is especially inclined to uh, tussle with the bear, so they just sort of stand there haplessly for a while. 
On the road, Tia has more recollections. She remembers that a lot of people died arriving on ships from a place that isn't there anymore. Mm. This is also where the final puzzle piece falls into place, I guess. Because Tony says that the two stars on the cover of the star case are because our world had two suns. He doesn't say it that melodramatically, but uh, <laughs> but that's what he says. So it turns out that the kids are illegal aliens. We'll find out mm. uh, if they make it home or to their uh, <laughs> to their sanctuary in America here or not. We'll see. Bolt, meanwhile, flies over Hiram's house and he sees the bear in the car. The bear somehow opens the door and gets out. <laughs> it wanders off, so that frees up Doranian and the chauffeur to get in the car. They'll go south, and Bolt will go north, and they'll see what there is to see. The camper arrives in the town of Stony Creek. It pulls up to a hotel right next to a smaller building labeled Misty Valley Cooperative, and they recognize that name from the map. So mm -hmm. they head in. It, the door's unlocked. It's a nice, clean, wood-paneled office. There's nobody in it right now, though, so they, they decide to wait. Duranian on the highway catches up with some of the search party. He lets them know the reward is now $5,000. Mm. But there's a catch. The kids have to be <laughs> alive. That's always annoying. Yeah. <laughs> Easier if we could just kill them. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. But he doesn't care what happens to the old man. So there's that anyway. And the search party suggests that there's a nearby town of Stony Creek that could be worth looking at. So everybody heads down there. Jason and the kids have been waiting in the office of Misty Valley Cooperative, but no one has showed up yet. As Jason points out, it's an awful long time to be away for a lunch break. <laughs> Tony remembers there was something to do with the phone book. So he looks in the handy phone book and he finds a number and dials it. The phone's answered by Misty Valley Cooperative, which... Mm -hmm is kind of amusing because they're theoretically in the office of the Misty Valley Cooperative. <laughs> Tony says, I was calling the castaway family, and and the voice interrupts him. It says, it's all right. Were you looking for Mr. Castaway? Tony answers affirmatively. Just then, Duranian's car pulls into the parking lot. Voice on the phone asks if this is Tony and if Tia is with him. And when Tony says yes, the voice says, Thank the blessed stars. We've been searching for you for years. The voice says the kids are to go out the back door and go to the camper. As they approach the camper, they get a mental telepathy message from the same voice. It says, Make sure Duranian doesn't lose you. Mr. Castaway has a plan to discourage Duranian from ever pursuing the kids again. And then the camper comes out of hiding and the chase is on. It's a camper in the lead with Duranian right behind. I don't know if we mentioned Duranian's car, but it's nice looking. It's like this black <laughs> uh, black two-door. It's real long. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking I'm thinking it might be a Mercury or a Ford, but it's it's mm. it's just a very nice long, sleek looking car. Pretty neat. Behind Duranian, there's two carloads of hunters. Actually one's in a car and one's in more of a Bronco type vehicle. All these people are all chasing each other along uh, along the highway and then on a winding back road. Duranian calls Aristotle Bolt so that he can get on on all the fun as also. On this winding back road, Tony uses his harmonica to lift a giant sack of flour out of the cupboard in the <laughs> camper 
And he also uses the harmonica to open a camper window for the sack of flour to fly out of. And this is an unusually bad special effect, I think, because the windows in the camper, they're they're using like a green screen to show us passing hills, you know, the mm-hmm. camper driving by. But when that window opens, with the green screen effect on that one window is no longer there, and we just see pitch blackness outside of it. <laughs> it's a, it's just kind of abrupt and uh, really uh, not not great. <laughs> but the flower sack is out of the camper and flying now, and it hits the windshield of one of the search party cars, which bumps off the road and down a hill. And it ends up propped up against a tree at a pretty unlikely angle. And nobody's hurt, but the car has seen better days. Bolt's helicopter is on the scene now. It gets in close. It's flying right along the roadside. Bolt sees a road up ahead, a side road, and he contacts Duraney and tells him to take that side road. That'll let him get ahead of the camper and cut it off. And the trick works. Duranian does end up blocking the road. But the camper, the brakes don't seem to work when Jason tries to apply them. Fortunately, however, the camper just flies over Duranian's car and <laughs> soars into the sky. This distracts the remaining carload of hunters, and they drive into a lake. <laughs> so Tony explains to Jason that this is called levitation. The kids aren't doing it. This is too powerful for their powers. This is probably the voice they spoke to on the phone. <laughs> Aristotle Bolt is up in his chopper still, and he does a not just a double take, but a triple take, because he now notices there's a flying Winnebago right next to the copter. <laughs> you know, good, good reason to look twice or three times even. They all fly into a big cloud in a very, very unconvincing special effect. It's just <laughs> sort of, it almost looks like a, one of those Monty Python animations from the Holy Grail. Yeah, just mm-hmm. sort of this big cloud descends from the top of the screen. <laughs> but anyway, they fly into the big cloud, and when they emerge, it seems that the Winnebago is upside down. But after a moment, Bolt realizes it's his helicopter that's upside down, which probably isn't a good position for a helicopter to be in generally. In fact, the rotor probably should be pulling the copter towards the ground pretty quickly. But the levitation's got it under control, apparently. So it's all good. The camper lands with a pretty subpar green screen effect. Then the voice says, the telepathic voice, Mr. Castaway, presumably, he says that Jason and the kids should get out here and wait. They, they've landed in the middle of a big field amongst some rolling hills off the road. The kids decide that this is a good moment to give Winky to Jason. <laughs> Apparently, where they're going, they they don't need cats. Mm-hmm. So, Jason is now the proud owner of a new cat. And uh, he says, I'd like to plan on remembering you two as if you were my kids, the kids I never had. And just then, a man emerges from the tree line nearby. He's got a pale blue shirt and blue jeans, almost matching. And this is Uncle Benet. He explains to the kids that he didn't drown. He says, now if you know exactly what to say to a shark, he can be very accommodating. (laughs) Uncle Benet praises Jason for his help, and he mentions there are more survivors, all with cases and maps. But only Tony and Tia have found their way back. Jason says he'll keep an eye out for more. 
This could just be my imagination at work, but it seems to me that this might have been a setup for a possible TV series. You know, like mm. every week Jason hunts down a new survivor <laughs> of the wrecks. Duranian Bolt approach, finally. Duranian in his black car driving over the hills and uh, Bolt in his upside-down chopper. And the chopper comes down towards Earth, still upside down, and you get some reaction shots of the people nearby. They're all pretty apprehensive because when a helicopter's blades hit something, it's generally a bad deal. It's, <laughs> it doesn't work the way that it works in video games usually, you know, where they just scrape against things and shoot off sparks. Yeah. It's usually a bit more dramatic than that. But the levitation is doing its work again, and the, the copter just lands peacefully on its blades and slowly rotates around, <laughs> upside down. Duranian helps Bolt out of the chopper, and they're on the scene just in time to see a flying saucer emerge from the trees. It's a, a pretty good look looking for a flying saucer. You know, I've always been more partial to the less saucer-shaped spaceships, but it's pretty good. And it's got this blue glowing light underneath it that I think is one of the things I remember from the movie, mm. from seeing it originally. But we see a little window in the side of the saucer that the kids are waving from, and Uncle Benet, they're waving to Jason, then the window goes opaque, and the saucer flies off over the hills. Well, Duranian and Bolt uh, don't really have much to say after that, so they just <laughs> get in Duranian's car and they drive off with their respective chauffeur and pilot. And then the saucer returns briefly just to sort of take a final bow. It just sort of hovers and then takes off again. And Jason says, well, they're home now. And that's <laughs> the end. Okay. So, well, story-wise, I, mean, I think an interesting thing about this story is that usually the template for action stories is that you are going to be challenged several times and have to overcome challenges. And they do overcome challenges, but there's no point here where they're ever in actual danger, right? They can always... Yeah use their magic and overcome it. And on the one hand, I would say that's a weakness. That's not the normal approach for a movie. On the other hand, I'd say, well, this is just a story about two very young kids, you know, making their way and getting to the end. And it's not necessarily a problem that they never really had a challenge or what, you know, they never really got put in jail or, you know, put into a situation that they couldn't get out of. Yeah. And it's a movie for kids also. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's entirely appropriate, I think. So actor wise, what did you think? Well, first of all, you know, we had Domanian. He, he was good. He never really seems to descend into the gloatingly evil caricature. You know, he, he seems like probably not a great or good man, but uh, he seems like he's mostly just being driven by his obligations to Bolt or his fear <laughs> of what Bolt might do to him. Yeah, it, it's interesting character. And, of course, the actor, uh, he does a good job with it. Yeah. Well, and then speaking of Bolt, you know, <laughs> He is the ultimate evil guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he's, your, he's your typical abuse the underlings just for the sake of being abusive kind of guy, you know? 
Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it, it, that actor was fun, though. And you, you said Ray Milland. I'm trying to think yeah. where. I'm tempted to think he might have been in the the man with the X-ray eyes. He was in one of those 50s, early 60s science fiction movies, I think. August 14th, notes on experiment, designated X. Experimental subject, myself, James Xavier. X, the most fantastic experiment you have ever taken part in, presents Raymond in his most challenging role since his Academy Award-winning Lost Weekend. X, the man with the X-ray eyes. Are you all right? It's like a splitting of the world. More light than I've ever seen. Filled with light. X, the man with the X-ray eyes, tries to help the most desperate in our society and enjoys all the delights of secretly studying sexology. So, what do you think of the kids? I mean, you know, my take on the kids, and, and I think the reason this worked is that for being very young actors, they were very natural. Nothing to me felt wrong or out of place, you know, like these were really good actors for young kids. Yeah, yeah, I thought they were good. And it was it was interesting. There were a couple spots where they said things differently than a lot of people nowadays would. And I think it hmm. I think it's partly because of just, you know, in nineteen seventy five, you know, people use language differently now than they did you know, fifty years ago, more or less. Hey. Like, uh, there are a couple times when Tia says something like, they mustn't do this, or yeah, that's mm-hmm. not really a phrase that people use a lot these days, at least not the yeah. crowd that I run with. I thought it was kind of kind of charming. But yeah, they're just very, they, they come across as clever and good-natured kids and very believable. I didn't, I don't recall any lines that they had where I was just thinking, nah, you didn't sell that one, kid. <laughs> they're, they're pretty good. <laughs> Okay, so you already know my opinion, but is this worth watching for a modern audience? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd say, especially if you have kids available who might enjoy watching <laughs> it with. I mean, for an adult to watch it, I, I, I enjoyed it, you know, and I don't regret watching it. But I think, I think if you if you are going to undertake it, you may as well kill two birds with one stone, you know, and get a get a kid or two or three around to, <laughs> to watch the show with you because they'll, they'll probably get more out of it than the adults in the room. It's a, it's a fun movie <laughs> and, and a good movie, but it's, you know, it's, it's not really a, you know, it's no Blade Runner or <laughs> something <laughs> like that. Okay, well, I'm going to stick with the uh, best film ever made. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Seems like a, yeah. a balanced, reasonable opinion there. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, next time out, we'll check King Kong 1976, see how it stands up to the other King Kongs. (laughs) Very good. Okay, we'll see you soon. All right. Well, they're home now.